is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. KNX In-Depth, Daily News Magazine, where we dig deeper on the big stories of the day with newsmakers and experts from wherever news happens. We cover everything from breaking news to the just plain interesting. KNX In-Depth, we dig deep and ask the hard questions to bring you the facts you need to know. On the menu for today's show, booster shots. Three new CDC studies show how COVID vaccine booster shots provide the best protection against the widespread Omicron variant. We'll go in-depth into how these shots are saving lives, especially among the older population. The pandemic has more parents in California taking their kids out of school and into homeschooling, some even from their own small groups and co-ops. Will Russia invade Ukraine? Secretary of State Anthony Blinken met with Russia's foreign minister. So did they really accomplish anything? Scams are costing people lots of money, as they tend to do. Millions and millions of dollars. We'll go in-depth into two big scam types. One is the old romance scam. Person looking for love gets swindled. But, of course, they've updated it for our modern age. Of course. And then uh, another new one. This involves QR codes at restaurants and businesses. We use those to to pay for a whole bunch of stuff. But sometimes the crooks are, like, co-opting them and then steering you someplace else so you give them money and not the bar. They always find find a way. Because scammers are going to scam, right? Yeah. And the uh, music and comedy worlds are in mourning over the deaths of Meatloaf and Louis Anderson. Uh, not just uh, those worlds. A lot of people out there are sad. Uh, celebrities, uh, big names dying recently. We'll look into why celebrity deaths hit us uh, so hard. We are paging our doctor. But let's talk about these uh, <laughs> yeah. booster studies. Because we've seen kind of, and this is like anecdotal before yeah. now. Now we have these studies. But it seemed to be like a lot of people in the hospital who were vaccinated and were having really tough times, even just breakthroughs at home that were bad. They were on the two shots. And, of course, we know what happens with zero shots. Um, But the two shots seem to be worse for wear, and now we have these studies about the three shots, so the boosters, uh, being pretty effective. Yeah, I I mean, these are three different studies that the CDC has put out. And and very importantly, as you know, Mike, uh, they also talk about the effectiveness of booster shots against the Omicron variant, which is something that up until now we weren't really sure about. It looked as if they were the shot was pretty effective, the booster shot, but we didn't know for sure. Now we've got real-world studies. This is done with tens of thousands of patients all across the U.S., and all of these studies are in agreement. It shows without a benefit of a doubt uh, that uh, there is a marked effectiveness of having that third booster shot. In fact, for the senior group, right, for older people, uh, the studies conclude that somebody who is unvaccinated, right, as opposed to somebody who has the booster three shots, Mm -hmm. is 50 times, 50 times more likely to die than somebody who is fully and fully meaning now three shots. Yeah. So then there's things to unpack. And number one is, does the definition of fully vaccinated end up changing to the three in light of this? And then the other thing is, I think everyone who has a booster thinks everybody else has a booster, but the rates are actually not super high. That's that's absolutely right. Uh, Despite a lot of effort, you know, from the the White House all the way down to, you know, municipalities to get people boosted, uh, the booster vaccination rate is lagging. Uh, Not enough people have three shots, especially younger people. And I've seen Mm -hmm. some uh, figures along these lines that the older a person is, 
the more likely they are to have gotten that booster shot. The younger the person is, the less likely. Yeah, we were talking to, um, I think it was Andy Slava yesterday was yeah, saying that, right? Yeah, and, and and I think, you know, part of that is because younger people, they look at the figures and they say, well, we're not as likely okay. to get I'll as, be as ill. And, and all that is true, except the, the problem, as we know from having talked to innumerable experts on the show, is you never know if you are going to be the unlucky one, if right. you're a young person to get seriously ill or even die from COVID. Well, how many people have we met that said, you know, I got it pretty bad, my wife was fine, or my husband was was okay, they had sniffles and I was in bed for a week. So it's like rolling the dice every single time with us, which is what we've done for two, three years now. And and you touched on something just before, which is, is the government, the CDC really, is it going to change the definition of being fully vaccinated? Because right now, for example, if you want to go into some venues, right, in, mm-hmm. in uh, say, Los Angeles We've, City. A few have started. You know, like we hear every now and then, like, you got to have, but 99% are well, still the because two. Officially, yeah, the rules, well, the that's the right, rules. because officially you are fully vaccinated, according to the federal government, if you've had two shots or even one shot of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. But as the evidence is clearly showing now, that that third shot is really significant. There's there's kind of more and more talk in Washington about is the CDC going to finally say, yeah, you know what? The definition of being fully vaccinated against covid is not two, but but three shots coming up. Romance scams. They leave you with a broken heart and an empty wallet. And then be careful next time you scan a QR code at a restaurant. Make sure it's actually going to like their page so you can pay the bill and not some other place where you're going to send it to some scammer. Yeah, I feel like going to a restaurant in, I don't know, Burbank, but it says send your money <laughs> <Yes>. to Ukraine. <laughs> I mean, there's a problem. Do you guys right have there. an affiliate? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A bill in California would let kids as young as 12 get vaccinated without their parents' consent. Now, the goal is to boost vaccination rates. But can kids that young really make their own medical decisions? Do they have the maturity? With us is Lindsay Ray Wright, elementary school teacher, author, and reading interventionist. Thank you for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me. So uh, that really is the question. Uh, you deal with kids, right? Uh, a 12-year-old, does a 12-year-old really understand uh, uh, all the complexities of vaccination and potential side effects and all the things that go with any kind of medical treatment to make a decision on on their own? I disagree with this completely. The rational part of a child's brain, their frontal lobes aren't even developed until they're 25 years old. They have no business making medical decisions at the age of 12. Well, let's take what the bill's author says. He says, you know, it's it's falling in line with some current law that uh, does give 12 and older the ability to, to decide on some things like the HPV vaccine, the hep. B vaccine. And then he says, this senator, that, you know, there's a lot of kids out there and we've heard some stories that they make slideshows for mom and dad and they say, I want this thing. Why are you not on board with me giving it or getting it? And uh, they feel like they can't be safe or do the stuff they want to do because the parents are anti-vax or whatever the reason. And this is where I'm at. I have a 13-year-old daughter myself who made a PowerPoint yesterday on why she wanted a pet turtle. And that wasn't even thorough enough to convince me. So much less allow her to make medical decisions for herself at that age. So you mentioned something interesting uh, about frontal lobes not being fully developed until 25. Yet certainly when you know kids turn 18, they can make their own decisions about medical issues. 
Exactly. And I changed my career path and major until the age of 22. And looking back now, some of the things that we would eat and drink and stay up all night, that, that even wasn't the healthiest for us at the age of 18. I know that at the age 36 now, I make much better decisions than I did as a new mom at 25. And yet we know getting the COVID shot is not like eating or drinking something bad. It's good for you. The evidence shows it's safe. So if there's a 12-year-old who wants it and the only thing that stands in their way is mom and dad, uh, shouldn't they be able to get it if they don't feel safe at school? They don't want to get COVID. They don't want to stay home. Exactly. And I am, I'm pro-choice for parents making decisions for their children if it's in their best interest. However, I don't know that the children fully understand what it's like to make decisions for themselves that could possibly affect them long term. And I know it is it is great. We have children all over our campus that are vaccinated and their parents have taken them to get vaccinated. But I also know the students that walk into my classroom are not fully capable of making those decisions. And what my fear is if we give them the choice to make those decisions, what will we be allowing them to do next? Uh, I was just going to ask you that, that, that does it open up a can of worms? That once you say someone who's 12 can make a decision, even if their parents say no, that they can be vaccinated for COVID, then yeah, I mean, you know, what's the next thing that they could say, look, I'm 12, but I really want to go on that cruise to the Caribbean. Exactly. And, and, and are they going to be able to go on the cruise to the Caribbean by themselves? No, they're going to need <laughs> We all want parents. to go on the cruise <laughs> yeah. to the Caribbean. Um, does this also kind of feed into the classic complaints that we get, and we've had them for years that, you know, and whether it's right or whether it's wrong, and this depends probably on your stance, but, uh, you know, these lawmakers, they're always telling parents what's best for their child, and it's from the top down, and let us make our own. That's just going to get going again, and this is a fight we've had for years and years and years. Exactly. The, uh, you know, when you deal with with children in your professional life, right? Not not your own kids, but just you know, professionally. Right. Um, are there times though? Because I want to I want to sort of look at it from a devil's advocate point of view here. Are there times though that you're surprised by how mature even a twelve year old can be, and maybe maybe they make decisions that you thought they were incapable of making, but they made a good choice. Right. And that's what's so hard about this. I used to teach um, high school and some of those students are the parent in their household. Those children are taking care of siblings and they are making the decisions for their for their parents. So that is where it gets very sticky. So, you know, if it were 17 letting them make that decision, I could see where that would be okay. But 12, 13, 14, I mean, these kids are wearing shorts and it's 12 degrees outside. So they just they just don't make rational choices at that age of that importance. Lindsay Ray writes their elementary school teacher, author, reading interventionist. Of course, there are a lot of adults that wear shorts outside when it's cold. That's right. So, so there. Hats and gloves, everyone. Yeah. When we come, especially here, if it's like oh, under yeah. sixty degrees, right? Full parkas because Los Angeles. <laughs> full parkas, parkas. I saw last time when it was cold, there were yeah. people walking down the street like full on winter New York coats. I'm like, what are you doing? Because people here, when I it gets because much, it's it's yes. yeah, when it goes below seventy five, it's considered it's a cold wave. Yeah. Coming up, broken hearts and empty bank accounts, romance scams are on the rise. And rock star Meatloaf and comedian Louie Anderson have died. Fans are in mourning. We will take a look into why celebrity deaths hit us so hard. 
Right now, though, more parents in California pulling their kids out of school and putting them into homeschooling, either alone or small groups. Close to 35,000 families filed an affidavit with the states to open private homeschools for five or fewer students during the 2020-2021 school year, more than double uh, 2018-19. With us is Karen Golden, Director of Creative Learning Place and Enrichment Center in Palms, helps parents set up homeschooling. Karen, thanks for being with us. So what are you hearing from parents as to why they want to go this route? Wow, there are a lot of reasons. First of all, thank you for having me on your show today. Um, there are a lot of reasons why parents are choosing to homeschool now. Uh, primarily, it's due to the pandemic. Some parents are feeling that they don't want their children to have to wear a mask all day in school. Some uh, parents feel that they're afraid that schools may go back to virtual and they don't want the uncertainty of that. Uh, there are other parents who are anti-vaccination and they're afraid that schools might go in that direction. So there's really many factors that contribute to the rise in homeschooling. But those are just a few. Are there qualifications that parents have to present in order to teach their kids at home? No, there are no qualifications. The only thing that's required by the state of California is that a family must file a private school affidavit or they need to enroll their children in something called a homeschool charter school, which is essentially a public school that doesn't have a building. And the school funds the students' education through learning centers like mine. Uh, I provide education for students in grades K through 12 through my creative learning place. Or uh, students can use the funding that they receive from the state in their charter school to purchase materials, curriculum, or do online programs or, um, you know, homeschool in other ways. Yeah, where does the stuff come from, the the actual curriculum? Because if the, the parents don't need the, the qualifications or whatever, they can go to someplace that what you have. How do we know what kind of learning will be done? Wow, that's a, that's a huge, that's a huge can of worms. Um, but... Students, um, well, let's start with this. Parents do not need to have a degree in education to teach their own students, and there is no accountability in the state of California if a family chooses to homeschool through a private school affidavit. So you can order curriculum online. You can plan your own curriculum. You can choose to be an unschooling family where the world is your oyster and your curriculum comes from the encounters that you have day-to-day by going to museums or going hiking. Parents do it in lots of different ways. And the truth is is that from kindergarten to eighth grade, none of this really matters. People don't know this, but it's not so important where your curriculum is. Once a student hits ninth grade, if they're thinking that they might want to go to a four-year university out of homeschooling, that's when it really starts to count, and that's really when curriculum is more important for those students who wish to go to a four-year university when they're 18. But I'm okay, trying but, to answer this quickly. No, 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 no. But, but, but you know, let's take going to uh, a university off the table for a moment, because not everybody wants to or needs to go, right. frankly, to a university. There, there are plenty of things in life to do without a, a college degree. But Absolutely. there are also things that you need to, to just need to know to navigate the world successfully. So if my parents say are, you know, they're PhDs, then, then maybe I have great confidence that I'll learn something. Suppose my parents are a bunch of dummies. Yeah, well, that's, that's one of the challenges facing a lot of families right now because a, a family may not be very educated, but the one thing that's in their mind is, I don't want my child to wear a mask or I don't want my child to be vaccinated, and they feel that they can handle their child's education, and that is really a challenge because some families really 
don't have the means or the knowledge to educate their children. So then we're not confident that that child in that situation is is getting a whole bunch of benefit. That's correct, and I'm receiving more and more calls from families that fit into that category. Families that call me and they say, hey, we want to pull our kids from school, we're not happy with school, and then I say, okay, let's talk about homeschooling, and when I tell them what kind of things they might do with their children, they're they're quiet. Hmm. Is is California, in that respect, where the parents don't have, uh, don't need to have any qualifications, is that unique in California? Is that pretty much the way it is, if you know, around the rest of the country? I think it's the way it is around most of the country, but what is unique in California is the homeschool charter system. That is unique. I don't know of other states that have that same system. Karen Golden, director of Creative Learning Place and Richmond Center in Palms, helps parents set up homeschooling. When we, by the way, I wasn't suggesting my parents were dummies. They were PhDs. No, they weren't that either. (laughs) (laughs) They were borderline PhD dummies. (laughs) No. Uh, When we, I'm going to get emails. Have you met PhDs who are dummies? Oh, many of them. (laughs) We've had some on the show. (laughs) You're listening to KNX In-Depth, a daily deep dive into some of the more important and more interesting stories affecting all of our lives, along with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Ukraine's still the focal point the latest tensions between the U.S. and Russia. Russia does not want Ukraine part of NATO or even, you know, NATO adjacent. Yeah. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken met with his Russian counterpart in Geneva today. They agreed to agree they need to talk again. This comes after President Biden toughened his stance, saying any movement of Russian units across the Ukrainian border would be taken as an invasion. Daniel Treisman is a political science professor at UCLA with a focus on Russian politics and economics. Thanks for being with us. So uh, there was great confusion, as you know, after the president uh, had his public comments the other day about whether or not he was, in effect, giving the Russians permission, if you will, for a a minor uh, invasion. And then the White House very quickly backtracked. Do you think that that was uh, perhaps maybe a deliberate thing that the president wanted to telegraph to Mr. Putin? Uh, I don't really think so. I think he misspoke. Uh, Of course, everybody knows that the Western response will depend on exactly what the Russians do. Uh, There's no secret there that uh, there's going to be some proportionality. Uh, But it was uh, unintended to open up this discussion in the press about whether uh, a smaller incursion uh, would get a, it would uh, be met with a robust response. But I think he didn't tell Putin anything that Putin didn't already know. Putin knows that there's some disagreement, some debate among Western NATO member leaders on just what the response should be. Uh, that said, uh, they're all committed, as I understand, to a strong uh, response if there is actually an invasion. So we're now at a point where they've done the cleanup job, at least in the press, to clarify all the comments. And then more talks are apparently coming or could be coming. The longer we talk, is that just the longer we can delay them doing something? Or is that the hope? Well, I, yeah, I, I think I think it is uh, in part the hope. Uh, so Lavrov has uh, demanded on the part of the Russians a written response to the Russian proposals, which have been widely uh, portrayed as non-starters. So uh, Secretary Blinken is going to go away and come back with a, a written response. Now, it's not clear that the Russians uh, would want to stage an invasion if they do invade before the end of the Chinese 
uh, Olympics, Olympic ceremonies. So uh, it's not clear that even if uh, an immediate resolution is delayed for some weeks, that that will mean that uh, there won't be an invasion. Um, the Russians could be happy waiting a little longer regardless. But at this point, of course, uh, it's better that the two sides keep talking uh, than that uh, we move to something uh, more dangerous. But suppose there isn't an invasion in the sense of what an invasion means, you know, troops crossing the border into Ukraine. Suppose the Russians uh, mount a, a cyber attack against Ukraine, or suppose the, which they actually apparently did a, a few weeks ago, right? Uh, but suppose on a bigger scale, suppose they uh, uh, use drones, but no troop movements. I mean, what's the definition of invasion? Yes, uh, it's a little unfortunate that uh, invasion was uh, defined by uh, Secretary Blinken as movement of troops across the border. I hope he also meant missiles, uh, because it's very possible that any action would start with heavy bombing uh, with missiles from across the border. Um, so I hope that's included. Other, other things like cyber attacks, uh, other destabilization measures, perhaps by agents already inside Ukraine, I think uh, the U.S. Uh, statement has been that the West will respond uh, in kind or in a similar way, and it's been left uh, somewhat vague. It's, it's always possible that Putin spelled this out in his talks with, that, that Biden spelled this out in his talks with Putin, but uh, publicly at least it's been let, left vague, and uh, we'll just have to Hope that we don't have to wait and see. Daniel Treisman, political science professor, UCLA, focus on Russian politics and economics. The uh, TV show Catfish, you ever watch that? Couples that form relationships online, they never meet in person. There was also this podcast uh, recently, Sweet Bobby, if you listen to that, it was uh, one of the top rated ones. It was a woman who got catfish for years and years, like one of the most sophisticated scams anybody's yeah. ever seen. Thinking she knew somebody, she was in love with him. That was not the guy. Well, people across all age groups, with the exception from 60 to 69, lost millions more in the first three quarters of 2021 compared to 2020. But those in their 60s lost significantly more money than any other age group in 2020 and 2021. To talk about the effects of these uh, romance scams, Dorit Reichenthal is with us, founder of Relationship Works Life Coaching and a member of the Association of Partners of Sex Addicts Trauma Specialists. Dorit, thanks for being with us. So... Lay out some of the ways first that people start to get roped into these. How do these, you know, scammers end up finding their victims? So actually, they are really great at targeting their victims because their victims have two specific character traits, hyper empathy and hyper compassion. So these guys are literally preying on vulnerable women, like you said, ages 60 to 79, who are really lonely. And then they engage in what we call love bombing, right? And so these women think that these guys are crazy about them. And they understand them. And you have to ask yourself, so, so who are these guys? Who are these scammers? And these scammers are people that have um, an ability to really read people 
and almost to complete their sentences so that the woman they're preying upon feels, oh my goodness, this guy really gets me. He can complete my sentences. And there's this, what we call, you know, bond connection there. And um, it's very, very intense. So walk us through briefly how this actually works from beginning to end. So right away, it'll start out with flattering a woman, right? You're so beautiful. I love your smile. Now, this is, by the way, let me interrupt. This is all online, right? This is somebody going to an online sort of dating thing. Exactly. It's an online dating app. And if you think about it, because of the pandemic, where women or all of us would have these big lives, right? Whether we would be socializing with friends or we're, we're still working professionally. Now we're home all day and our social contact is by way of the computer. It's online. And so people are spending a whole lot more time online, uh, especially on these dating apps. And so the first thing they have to do is really hook the woman. How do they do that? They do that with love bombing, making them feel special. Like they're the, the woman is the answer to their prayers and If within the first two minutes of, you know, the interaction, they don't feel like the woman um, gets hooked into their victimhood, because typically they will um, talk about some way that they've been victimized, typically by other women, and she's different. They could see that she's different. And so the woman feels really special and a connection to this person. And it happens very quickly. It doesn't take long. When does the ask and how does the ask for, you know, money? When does the ripoff happen and how do they how do they get the money out of somebody? Especially because I guess if they seem so great, well, then you're willing to overlook the idea like, why haven't we met? But I haven't met you. So why am I giving you money? Okay, and so. People that are hyper-empathic, hyper-compassionate, and you couple that with loneliness, maybe some low self-esteem, feeling feeling of maybe being unlovable, unworthy, because they've just gone through a breakup, a divorce, um, and suddenly there's someone who thinks they're special they're willing to ignore their intuition because their intuition is telling them, right? Wait a second. He's asking you for money or he wants to give you money. He's sending you flowers. The intensity is really, really great. And but but do they, they but do they just much yeah, more vulnerable? But do they just does the does the guy just simply at at some point say, uh, oh by the way, I need what I need a a hundred dollars? No, to... he, he, actually he has to lay the foundation right. There's got to be a victim hook, right? He needs her, 
right? And this, this really zeroes in on her, you know, wanting to help nurture, you know, this poor guy, you know, for whatever reason, he needs this money, or is willing to give me money, right? Because it's money laundering. And so he must really, really love me because he's willing to give me money. And there's, there's a lot of fantasy that goes on. And you've, when you've got this intense connection in the beginning, the brain is bathing in a chemical bath of feel-good hormones, feel-good neurotransmitters, serotonin, norepinephrine. It overrides our thinking, analytical, and strategic part of our brain. Dorit Reichenthal there, founder of Relationship Works Life Coaching, member of the Association of Partners of Sex Addicts, Trauma Specialists. Dorit, thanks for talking to us. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, your daily deep dive into some of the more important and interesting stories affecting all of our lives. How deep are we diving anyway? All the way in. All the way in. Okay. That's, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> that guy's Mike Simpson. This guy's Charles Felton. So we did the romance scam thing. Yeah. Now the uh, tech scam of the hour. The FBI says cyber criminals are using those QR codes. We see them all over the place now, restaurants and businesses. Uh, they're using those to get at your personal info. So with us to explain how this all works is Paul Rosenzweig, cybersecurity expert, Homeland Security consultant, and former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Homeland Security. Paul, thanks for being with us. So how exactly does this work? Uh, I, I, you know, I think most people now are probably familiar with QR codes and using their phones to get things, as Mike just said, like a, a menu at a restaurant. How do criminals use QR codes? Well, thanks for having me, guys. And this is one of those insidious things. It, it always happens as soon as as soon as normal life goes in a direction, the criminals follow. And we've gone in the direction of QR codes because of COVID, for example. When you scan a QR code, typically right now, it leads you to a website address, the website address that has the menu for the restaurant that you're sitting in or something like that. What happens is that the criminals have been replacing the QR codes that lead you to the right website with QR codes that lead you to other websites. Uh, and in, in the simplest way, those websites then ask you to enter some information in order to, say, complete the menu order. Uh, your 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 name and your email address, which is harvesting personal information from you. In the more insidious versions, sometimes those websites will do what is known as auto load or auto run malware that's resident on that website and will try and port that into your mobile device without you even having to click on a link because the link you clicked on is the one that took you to the website in the first instance. If that's the case, then uh, malicious actors could gain access to your mobile device and thus anything that's on your mobile device, passwords, personal information, emails, phone logs, pictures, you name it. I saw one and it was in Texas and they were putting, they being the criminals, were putting the little QR code stickers on some of the parking meters. So people would just go, oh, good, I can just pay for parking right here. Well, no, it's not even to the city. It's just to the bad guys, right? Because uh, we're yep. so used to just, oh, this is here. I'm going to use it. How nice. For the restaurants and stuff, are they literally just, you know, somehow tampering with the one that's there and putting their own up? How do they even get us yeah, to click on theirs? Somehow, Is that simple? It's not somehow tampering. 
I mean, I don't know about uh, L.A., but in D.C., where I live, the QR codes are posted on every uh, every outdoor table that we have. Yeah, just slap and your own sticker know, on it. Yeah, I just walk by and put my sticker over yours. I was going to ask, I mean, let's just confine it to the uh, restaurant scenario. Do the restaurants themselves, are they party to the scam? Or is it, as you just said, uh, somebody walked by and there are some outdoor seats and they, I guess, discreetly tape over the existing QR code with their own? Uh, you know, I, I guess it's possible that the restaurant, some of the restaurants might be parties to the scam. But I have to think that, you know, the dominant uh, scenario is that they're the victims as well. And that eventually you get redirected back to their website by the bad guys. So so you don't even know and they don't even know that a problem has happened. You fill in the information, you give them some personal information, and then they pass you back to the original place you were supposed to go. And you and you register and enter uh, your order. Sometimes, you know, it, it, the restaurants, you, you, you can also uh, put in credit card information and pay through one of the applications like Toast or something like that. That could go back to the bad guys as well, and bam, your credit card is now uh, <laughs> compromised. So what do you look for then, especially if, because I was going to say, like, should you be wary of some sort of landing page? It should take you right to the menu. But if it's going to get you to the menu after a couple steps, people might just ignore it and think, oh, this is the process. Uh, I, I think that's right. You, you should be hyper aware of the fact that any request for information is kind of suspect other than what number table you're sitting at. They don't need your name to know that you're ordering, you know, uh, the chicken empanadas uh, and a beef burrito. That's not required. Uh, so anything like that is suspect. And then uh, payment information is obviously always a, a risky endeavor. So be careful about that as well. So if you click on a QR code at the restaurant and it and it says something like, uh, do you want, uh, you know, steak or hamburger and what's your routing number, that should raise your suspicion. Yes. Well, what's your bank account number? Yes. So we we'll go ahead and debit this. Yeah. <laughs> Paul Rosenzweig, security experts, uh, Homeland Security consultant, former deputy assistant secretary of Homeland Security. Paul, thanks. Today, Hollywood lost two celebrities, Meatloaf in the music world and Louis Anderson in the comedy world. Pop music icons Cher and Boy George expressing their condolences to Meatloaf's family on Twitter. Actors uh, Wesley Snipes and Gilbert Gottfried paying homage to uh, Anderson on social media. What about all the fans mourning the stars, fans who never actually met them? Why do people feel so devastated when celebrities pass away? Andrea McDonald is an associate professor of communication at Providence College. She's also one of the authors of Celebrity, a History of Fame. So uh, uh, welcome to the show, first of all. Uh, why do people care uh, that much about people that they've probably never met, never would have met, and just see uh, on TV maybe or in a movie screen or, or listen to? Well, thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, I think that there's a couple of reasons why. Um, might be different for different people, but... Uh, we sometimes identify with these celebrities, musicians, artists, and actors. Um, they maybe personify particular aspects of ourselves that we either relate to or find aspirational. But I think most often it ha actually has to do with our own lives. Uh, we can probably remember a time where Louis Anderson made us laugh or think about belting out paradise by the dashboard lights at a wedding 
and how we felt, the happiness that we felt in those moments, um, the people that we were with, the kind of good memories that uh, we had. And so even though Meatloaf and Louis Anderson maybe weren't physically present with us during those moments, in some ways they were kind of with us and their memory stays with us. Is that especially true for people like of someone's era, if you grew up with them or if they were big for you in your 20s or 30s or whatever? And, and now it's been years and years, but you think back and you go, oh, wow, that was that was so fun. I had such a good time. I used to love their music, whatever it is. Definitely. I think that feeling of nostalgia of being able to look back and have those memories, it brings us immediately back to a particular place in our lives. And for someone um, like these particular stars who have had careers that have really had longevity, and we've in a lot of ways grown up with them as fixtures in our lives. Um, you know, we can think about also recently the passing of Bob Saget and Andre Leon Talley and the kind of memories that we have and the way in which these people broke ground in some cases and in various different ways. And so um, definitely, I think thinking back on those times in our lives, um, it brings up emotions for people. Now, of course, there are two different kinds of, of people, I think, uh, who mourn in different ways the passing of celebrities. There's the person who, uh, and I think that's what you were primarily talking about, who, you know, they, they read or they hear about the passing of a celebrity and they go, oh, that, that's really bad. And they feel bad about it because of all the uh, connections they have perhaps to their own uh, lives. But then there's the person who, uh, and we've all seen them on, on TV when certain celebrities die, they, they'll get on an airplane, you know, and they'll fly across the country to to go to a memorial service for the celebrity. Again, a person they've never met. Now, that's a different degree, isn't it? Sure. I mean, we can think about um, fandom operating or existing on a kind of scale where some kinds of fandom seem very ordinary and others might seem extreme to us or even pathological at times. Um, but in fact, academic literature suggests that we can have very strong uh, relationships, uh, parasocial relationships with famous figures, public figures, even if we've never met them. You can think about, for instance, the outpouring of grief over the death of Princess Diana, which is kind of the seminal moment. Um, and we're still, as a culture, coming back to that moment in popular media today. And so um, that feeling of real closeness, intimacy that certain people, um, certain audience members and fans may have with stars, um, for some people, that's extremely heightened based upon their own personal um, relationship with that star, even though they may never have had um, a relationship with them in quote unquote real life. Is some of it because these celebrities can also feel like, you know, they've always been around some of them or, you know, it's like a weird comfort for people that they're like still in the world, even if they aren't currently working like you couldn't have put out a hit for the last 20 years. But if someone's you just know they're still alive and that's like, oh, that's good. I'm happy they're still here, even though I don't hear from them all the time. Totally. I mean, in the last few months for me, it's been striking, you know, as I move through into a new phase of my adulthood that so many people in the popular culture are passing away. And it's not that that's a new thing, right? It's just that I'm more perhaps uh, emotionally moved by that because I'm old enough now to have had a kind of parasocial relationship with these people. And so I do think there's a sense of comfort where uh, 
stars who have brought us pleasure and who have given us a sense of, um, in some cases, like a familial bond or even just seem like trusted people we kind of get to know through media, just knowing that they're there, that we could listen to their song or perhaps see them on TV at some point. It's a kind of reassurance. And when we feel like they're gone, in some ways, it reminds us of our own mortality. I was just going to ask you that if because you were talking about, you know, as one gets older, if if some of this mourning for celebrities is because uh, perhaps it was a celebrity you grew up with and then you realize, especially if you haven't heard from them maybe in a few years, and then you find out that that person is like 85 and they just died and you think, wow, I remember watching that person when they were 25 on TV. And then you think and you go, oh, wait, that also means that I've gotten a lot older. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Their passing marks a passing of time. And I think in particular, as we've been grappling as a country and as a world with the, you know, the fact of a global pandemic, we've been in a lot of ways confronted with our own mortality. The possibility of death is tangible for us in ways that, you know, maybe five years ago it wasn't. And so when we see um, celebrities age, they're almost kind of serving as an avatar or a vision for Um, aging more broadly, how we want to age, perhaps, or the tragedy of life cut short too soon. Then again, all their stuff is always still here, right? So yes, you can be sad in maybe the first few days or whatever, but then put on like their movies or songs and then have a great time. Absolutely. And in a way, I think that's a kind of beautiful thing for keeping someone's memory alive, that we still enjoy their work and that we still engage with them even though their um, their life has passed, is a way in which we kind of re-engage their spirit. And, um, you know, I was just thinking um, myself tonight of, of wanting to watch old shows or when Betty White passed away, wanting to go back and watch Golden Girls. And so I think there's, there's a way in which that honors their legacy. And it, there's also a way in which it brings us comfort as fans to feel in some sense that they are still with us. I feel like so many people have been streaming Golden Girls over the last few weeks. Andrea McDowell, Associate Professor of Communication, Providence College, also uh, one of the authors of Celebrity, A History of Fame. That's In Depth for the week. We'll be back Monday.